I want to thank you, Kurt, for giving me a good introduction this morning as we take a look. And this is uh, part one here as we step into this next section. Um, I've entitled it, Christ's Diverse Gifts to Build Up His Church. Uh, and we're going to see uh, uh, how the Lord has so practically, purposely uh, put forth gifting for each and every one of us that belong to him. So that there is no odd man out, odd woman out. Uh, there's not someone who says, I have nothing to give. Uh, because God has, in his wisdom, taken through this unity that we've talked about, this, this commonality of uh, belief, this faith that we have in Jesus Christ, uh, to actually diversify it such that uh, we function uh, as a unit as we individually serve one another. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful picture when it functions the way uh, it should, uh, then God is glorified uh, and people get saved uh, and the, the word of God goes forth. Uh, and so today we begin uh, by taking a look at verse 7. Uh, and uh, let me reread that verse as we begin this section here uh, that I've entitled, Grace Was Given to Each One of Us. It says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So conjunctions have an important role as we, you know, write things. Uh, you know, a, a conjunction can associate things. It can help bring things that are two opposites together, two things that are alike together. Uh, and, you know, sometimes when we read, we have a tendency to kind of just, you know, you know, plow right over top of words and don't realize the impact of what is being communicated. Uh, and that's one of those words here this morning because the word but in Greek uh, is a conjunction, uh, as you would be well aware of from the English language. Um, but it is also a coordinating adversative conjunction. Uh, let me define, because this will help you see and understand better uh, why I'm pointing this out, because the word but could be better translated on the other hand. Uh, it is coordinating because it is linking two parallel ideas. One is uh, this oneness in what we believe, this unity that we've talked about for the last few weeks, and all of a sudden a diversity of individual gifting according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, and so it's something that you would think would not work together because you've got something where you're talking about unity, but at the same time you're talking about diversity. Okay, how can something be diverse and be unified? Uh, you would think if it's diverse, then we wouldn't get along with one another, uh, and therefore there would be no unity. Uh, and the thing is, is when God is in the middle of things, some things that don't make sense to our human minds uh, are quite capable, uh, quite within God's wheelhouse to do. Uh, and so it's coordinating because it's linking these two parallel ideas, one which is unity and diversity, which I said seems kind of uh, oxymoron when we think about it. But it's also adversative. So it is answering and distinguishing a word or clause from the preceding one. Well, what's the preceding one? Well, the preceding you know, idea or clause is that there is oneness in what we believe. Uh, those verses that we read, which I'll read to you again, it says, Therefore, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But, 
Okay, so there is that, that connecting of these two. So as you take a look at this, that's right, it's, as you take a look at this this morning, and you look at this uh, oneness that we've just got done talking about, it says within this oneness, we believe that there is a diversity of gifts. So every believer here this morning, every brother and sister in Christ that uh, is here this morning, you have an individual gift from God. And the interesting thing is we'll learn over the next uh, you know, few weeks is that that gift is not for you. It's given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift, but it's for the benefit of the body. And see, so that's where God intervenes and takes that which is diverse and unifies it. Because it all, the ultimate end goal of all this is that God would be glorified. So this oneness and what we believe coming together as a parallel to this diversity of gifts is not meant to divide or to create a hierarchy, but to build up. And to build up what? That would be the church, the bride of Christ, so that we are unlike any other group in the world. You know, we are not like a, any other civic group that you can think of, because what pulls us together, what, you know, we share in common in Christ's blood is what unifies us, but also takes our individuality and God gifts us for the purpose of making it so that each one of you are indispensable in relation to the function of this body of believers. And the gift that he has given to you, whether you may see value in it or not, has great value in God's eyes in his church. Uh, and so we're going to see that unfold because we are all tools in the hands of the master craftsman who is building a God-glorifying, worshiping, exalting, and enduring, adoring family of God. That's what God is all about. He is purifying his bride. And he does that as we come together, as we, we take in and we sing songs together like Make Me a Servant for the purpose of unifying us, but using our individuality as individuals so that we're not just some blob of unity. Each one has a purpose. Each one has something to give to the rest of the body. And the question you may be thinking over these next couple of weeks uh, as we delve into this a little bit deeper is, is, are you giving that gift for the benefit of the body? Because you may be here this morning and you come week after week and there is nothing that you're doing other than coming week after week. The thing is, God has so much more for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ here today, he has given you something. He has equipped you with something so that you can be a servant in his body, a servant in his church. Because as I've told you before, this church does not belong to Pastor Bill or Pastor Caden, to the leadership of the church. This is God's church, and God builds his church, and he does that through each and every one of you individually. And that's something that is glorious to see when it is functioning the way it should. And so if you're here this morning, be praying that God will show you what your gifting is and how you can use that for the benefit of the body. Uh, and we'll speak to that at some point. Did I just cut out? I think so, maybe. I don't know. Making all kinds of noise. So, on the other hand, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Well, that word grace has once again appeared. And I'm not going to build upon that grace very much other than to say that grace is God's favor toward the undeserving, which is me and you. None of us deserve the grace of God because we were born in sin. We are guilty of breaking God's law. We are unrighteous enemies of God deserving death without any personal means of justifying ourselves, awaiting everlasting punishment apart from the love of Jesus Christ. And that's why grace is so beautiful when we sing Amazing Grace. It's amazing because of what God has taken us from being to transform us to who we are in Christ. Listen to how Martin Luther spoke to this. It's beautiful. He says, although out of pure grace, God does not impute our sins to us. He nonetheless did not want to do this until complete and ample satisfaction of his law and his righteousness has been made. Since this was impossible for us, God ordained for us in our place one, and that's capital O, who took upon himself all the punishment we deserve. He fulfilled the law for us. He averted the judgment of God from us and appeased God's wrath. Grace, therefore, cost us nothing, but it cost another, capital A, much to get it for us. Grace was purchased with an incalculable, infinite treasure, the Son of God himself. It's a beautiful summation of exactly what God's grace is. Uh, and as we look at the book of Ephesians and how we've seen this word utilized, Paul starts out the book saying grace and peace to you. He ends the book uh, with grace. And then in between, sandwiched in there, is a whole bunch of examples where it talks about this grace being glorious, being rich, being given as a gift for salvation. You cannot minimize, you cannot separate out from your spiritual existence the grace of God. Because if it wasn't for the grace of God, we know what our final punishment would be. Eternal, everlasting separation from God because we deserve it. Because we are the ones who have transgressed God's law. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And from his, speaking of Jesus, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because it's not just grace that's saving grace. It's not grace that's just amazing grace. It is such a fullness from Jesus that it is grace heaped upon grace upon grace. And just when you think that you've been, you know, God's been gracious enough to you, he heaps more on top of that. Because we still stumble and fall. We still need to confess our sins. We are still growing spiritually. We're still you know, looking to use our spiritual gift for the betterment of the body. But we're still individuals that struggle with sin, and so therefore God continues to heap grace upon grace upon grace. So much so that it is as if it were huge servings of God's grace in our lives as believers. Like a banquet feast, a buffet of grace where God just continues to keep filling everything that you, you know, love about him in such a way that it gives you the ease to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And one of those servings of grace is realized in that statement that finishes out verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. See, it is this basis that God distributes 
individual or diverse gifts to each one of his children for the benefit of the body so the body of Christ may be built up. It's not one person's job, and I'll put job in quotes because it's not really a job. It's not one person or a group of people. It's the entire body functioning as one. But as you can be well aware, we're not even going to get to the spiritual gifts today because of what the next verse says. And this is important because there's context that we're completely missing. Uh, And I want to take you on a slight journey out of Ephesians chapter 4 to where this quote uh, in verse 8 comes from. You'll see it says there, "Therefore, uh, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Okay, so you can keep your finger in Ephesians 4 or dog ear the page if you want. We're going to Psalm 68 because that's where this, you know, one sentence quote comes from. And and it's important for us to see this because as Paul was penning this letter, this would have no doubt come to the mind of his readers. Because as you know, the Psalms are the songbook uh, that uh, the Israelites used to sing and to recall everything there was to know in relation to who God is, his dealings with them, uh, how God was to them. Uh, And so Psalm 68 is where this particular sentence in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 4 comes from. And upon deeper study, and I, I, you know, I apologize to Terry because I thought I was going to get a lot farther today, um, but as I, I delve a little bit deeper, this is, I guess, you know, for lack of a good theological word, too yummy to pass up. You can take it for whatever you want it to be. But Psalm 68, and we're not going to read the entirety of Psalm 68, but I'm, I'm going to break it down into a couple sections so that we can see what is developing here. Uh, because I think that there is a beautiful parallel, uh, something that Paul's readers would have known, and you and I, unless we actually know the context, would miss out on completely. Uh, and it is something that it wasn't, you know, there's a reason why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul quoted this verse. And there's a little bit of a change to it, too, and we'll, we'll see that played out uh, in a very uh, neat way as well. So Psalm 68 is a song honoring God's triumphal ascension to Mount Zion. Um, many commentators believe that this psalm is in connection with 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, which we're not going to take the time to read, where the Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem. Uh, and you know the significance of the Ark of the Covenant uh, and in particular, uh, the mercy seat that was on top. Okay, and you know, the mercy seat, the significance of that, you know, uh, the mercy seat actually means in Hebrew uh, to cover, uh, to placate, to appease, to cleanse, to, to counsel, or to make atonement. Uh, and you know that uh, the high priest one time a year went into the holies of holies to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Uh, and that was to appease God's wrath and anger for past sins. So keep that in mind as you're, we, we take a look at this because this is a, a, a song of uh, you know, God defeating his enemies and triumphing and making a triumphal entry. Uh, and so let's take a look here, and I'd like to read verses 1 to 4, uh, actually, yeah, 1 to 4 uh, to start out with. Um, 
Actually, verses 1 to 6 is a break. So 1 to 4 is what we're going to read. And this is a call to sing praise for God's awesome power over his enemies. It says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him as smoke is driven away. So you shall drive them away as wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exalt before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. So this call to sing praises to God because he is triumphant over his enemies. Uh, You'll notice that it talks about uh, as wax melts before fire, the wicked shall perish before God. You know, uh, you know, as you light a candle, how the wax melts and just drips away. Uh, And when you have wet liquid wax, you know, it doesn't have the same solidity and, and form that the candle did before you lit it. Well, think about the holiness of God coming in contact with sinful nations, sinful individuals. It's as wax melts before fire. But you'll notice it says, but the righteous shall be glad. So those who know God are glad. Why are they glad? Because they know who they are in God, that their sins have been forgiven, that they belong to God, that they are not like the rest of the nations that do not know God. And so they should sing praises to him because he has scattered his enemies. They flee before him. Because that's exactly what sin does in the presence of holiness. That's why we hear, you know, phrases like, woe am I for I'm a man of unclean lips. As we come in, you know, into the presence of God. That holiness, you know, pushes out. Makes sin run and hide. To be done under the cover of darkness. Sometimes it's even blatantly out in the open. You know, because if, if man doesn't think that there's any accountability, then he can do whatever he wants. But the thing is, is he's forgetting who God is. And so the Israelites are praising God because he's delivered them from their enemies. And as you know, we look at Second uh, Samuel 6, this would have been right after defeating the Philistines uh, in a very powerful way, right after David is crowned king over Israel. Uh, and so there's this triumphant you know, uh, buzz in the air. Uh, in relation to what God has done because he's defeated their enemies. King uh, David is, is, is king over all of Israel. Verses 7 to 18 go on to recount God's gracious leading, provision, and deliverance as they travel from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. And that's where verse 18 of Psalm 68, which is Ephesians 4, 8, is quoted. It says there, You ascended on high leading a host of captives in the train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So you have this picture of God as, you know, king over all, and the train of his robe, the train of his, his victory uh, is, you know, filling everything as they come in. And, you know, as, you know, nations were conquered, the conquering nation would always receive the, the spoils, all the rewards of conquering that, those people. And this is the holy God of all through his chosen people, Israel, 
you know, under the, the leadership of King David, as King David says, Lord, should I go up against the Philistines? And, and God says, yes, do so, because I'm going to deliver them into your hand. And so God is victorious, you know, through this, this physical confrontation, but with a bigger thing of establishing and setting apart his people from the rest of the world. And you'll notice there, and I'm just going to highlight this right here, is that you'll notice that it says about receiving gifts among men. And some of you may have already picked up in verse 8 of uh, Ephesians 4 that it actually says that he gave gifts to men. And I'm going to speak to that in a few minutes. But let's keep on going because this psalm, again, gives us context into why he quoted this one verse. Verses 19 to 31 speak to the outcome of God's victory. And in David's mind and the minds of the, the children of Israel, this was a complete deliverance because God was going to do what God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would be delivered, that they would be victorious over all. Verse 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who bear, daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. Verse 20, our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. So in other words, he saved them from being, you know, annihilated by their enemies. Instead, God rose above that and delivered Israel from their enemies, delivered them from death. Verse 24, your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are Israel's fountain. Verse 28, Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. So again, this, this, this mighty procession, this glorious, as it were, parade, highlighting and showing forth God's power over his enemies. Because God is victorious, because God is able, because of being almighty God, to do everything that he wills. And he accomplishes all of his good pleasure, as the scriptures tell us. And what is the result of all this? As we, we see them singing praises because of God's awesome power over his enemies, recounting how God was gracious to them, provided for them, and delivered them. Uh, and uh, th this is not just a partial deliverance. This is a complete deliverance uh, because it is based in the God who delivers from death. Verses 32 to 35, all nations are called to worship and praise God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, Selah, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be do you see, can you imagine singing this out, having a, 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 you know, a thousand, a million people singing out this praise because God has delivered them. Give God the glory because he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. So this is a beautiful psalm, a beautiful song to God, rehearsing, remembering everything that God had done. So why is Paul quoting this one verse? Verse 18 in Psalm 68. Well, I want you to see some of the parallels as we take a look. So flip back over to Ephesians chapter 4. 
Because this is going to fill in some context that would otherwise, if you read that verse, would have just, you know, glazed right over it and thought that, you know, that's a good verse. That he ascended on high and led the host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So now you have a bigger picture of what is actually being referred to, a context back to Psalm 68. And what Paul is doing here in verses 8 to 10 is he's drawing a parallel to Psalm 68 to highlight Christ's victory. Not God as we see in the Old Testament in Israel and what God was doing, remembering that that is God Almighty, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one in the Old Testament. It's not a different God. But you'll notice our context in Ephesians chapter 4 has been all about Christ and salvation and God's plan of salvation before the time, our beginning of time itself. That salvation belongs to God. And all of a sudden he quotes this one verse right out of the middle of what he had just got done speaking to. It says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then what Paul does is he goes on to explain, and you'll notice it's in parentheses here, it says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So we have this picture in the Old Testament of a triumphal entry, a triumphal march to Jerusalem, possibly with the very Ark of the Covenant itself. And we, we see all of this praise and glory going to God because he is victorious over his enemies. Now think of it in light of the context of Ephesians chapter 4. We should sing praise for Christ's awesome power over his enemies. What enemy has Christ vanquished? What enemy has Christ forever been victorious over? Well, what does it tell us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Well, see, that's you and me. That's what we've experienced when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. And just like they were singing praise to God for his awesome power and delivering them from earthly enemies to establish the children of Israel as God's people, his special chosen people that he chose because of pure love for them, we can see here that there's a parallel that we should sing praise to God because he's been victorious over death and sin and the devil. And so the same, you know, joyful chorus that rose in Psalm 68, you know, uh, you know, a couple millennia prior can be the same thing that is happening as he writes his letter and even really the same thing for us a couple millennia farther forward for us to sing praise to Christ because of his awesome power because he has overcome his enemies. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 it says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's not going to be anyone that's going to question. There's not going to be any stopping. There's not going to be anyone that's going to raise to a higher power that is going to overcome, thwart, or overpower what Christ has done on Calvary. It is finished. 
And that is a reason for us to sing praise to Christ because he's been victorious over his enemies. He gave the gift of himself. But we should also recount Christ's gracious leading, provision, and deliverance from death. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, you know, the, the people commented that he was teaching them as one who had authority. Why was that? Because he is the Son of God. He does have authority. He is the authority. He is the creator. He is not the created. I may have some authority here on earth, but I don't have ultimate authority. We all have authority over something. But Jesus is over all. And you'll notice here it says that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. So think about Christ as the Son of God in the throne room of God in the highest heaven because of what the the God had decided even before he created Adam and Eve, even before sin was acknowledged in time, the eternal God had a plan of salvation that the Son would step down from that highest heaven descend to the lowest parts of the earth to be like one of us. This shows the depth of that gift. Refresh your memory with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Lord, make me a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there we see the descending to the lowest parts of the earth. To be like one of us, born in in human flesh, yet without sin. Because it was the Spirit of God that intervened so that Jesus Christ would not be born with the sin nature that you and I are born with as a result of Adam's sin, but also as a result of our own sin. But notice, it doesn't stop there. Verse 9, therefore, because that's a reality, because Jesus humbled himself in this like way, it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So he descended to the lowest parts of the earth but ascended to the place of glory, reestablishing his place of honor as God himself. See, that's what Jesus Christ did for you. He was victorious over his enemies. He led, he taught, he provided. And he is the only one that can deliver us from death. And I love what John 8.36 says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Nothing can change that. Because as you look back to that, that time of the mercy seat and the, the once a year high priest sprinkling on there for past sins, what did Jesus Christ do? You know, when he died on that cross, the temple veil tore in two. As we know, the Ark of the Covenant even wasn't there. At that point, it was gone. He became that mercy seat. His blood 
paid the price. Past, present, future. That's why we're completely saved, not partially. But all your sins were in the future anyway, as far as time is concerned. But Jesus Christ took those sins upon himself. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. See, that's what God, Christ has given in the gift of himself. But he also, as he left, gave us the gift of the Spirit. Because in John 16, 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So you see this transition from, you know, Psalm 68, where it says that he was receiving gifts among men because he, God the Father was seen, or the Godhead was seen as those that delivered them from their physical enemies, therefore, you know, receiving all the spoils of a physical war. And what Paul does is he quotes it here and he changes, you know, it from receiving gifts to he gave gifts to men. Jesus gave himself and when he left, he gave his spirit And this is why, as we look at all of this, all nations are called to worship and praise Christ, particularly those that belong to him. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11 go on to say, So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus finished what he came to do. And so as you look at, you know, your existence today, which is precious in God's sight, because your salvation is no less a sacrifice of Christ's blood than those that lived during the day when when Christ walked the earth, no less than going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Because it's still the precious blood of the Lamb of God. The one who can take away our sin. And this is why we sing, Lord, I lift your name on high. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave and from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. This is why we sing victory in Jesus. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. See, now that you can appreciate Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, in light of what happened in Psalm 68, to see God being victorious over his enemies, showing full deliverance of the children of Israel, to see that it is important for us to honor and to sing praises to God. Why Paul quoted that? Because there's a parallel to exactly what Christ has done. Because Christ has defeated his enemies completely. Satan is already judged. It's just a matter of time until which it is fulfilled. Death is no more. 
Yes, we still physically die, but we're spiritually alive, eternal life forever. Hallelujah is right. We belong to God, and therefore, as we wait for Christ's return, as he's given us not only the gift of himself for salvation, he's given us the gift of the Spirit as a seal to help guide us and lead us through this life. As we wait until he returns once again, we should, like all the other nations are going to be called to do, because every knee will bow, is that we should sing praises to Christ our Savior, both now, forever, and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen.